Good morning. We are entering into one of my favorite seasons, baseball season. And uh, uh, as we approach baseball season, I was doing a little bit of reading this week, and I was reading about a man named Robert Adair. And Robert Adair was a physicist at Yale, and uh, he actually wrote a book called The Physics of Baseball. And in this book called The Physics of Baseball, he, he broke down what it takes for a batter, a, a professional major league batter, to be able to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, which is, that's probably pretty standard for a fastball in, in the major leagues. And he said that, that the time that it takes for the ball to leave the pitcher's hand and travel 60 and a half feet, the distance from the, the mound to the plate, is about 400 milliseconds. That's less than half of a second. And he says it's in those first 200 milliseconds that the batter is trying to decide whether or not he's going to swing. He's got about 200 milliseconds to decide whether or not he's going to swing. And after that, he's got another 100 milliseconds to, to determine whether that ball is high, low, inside, outside, right? Because we've all been told from the very beginning, the first day you play t-ball, what is the dad's, what is, dad, what do you say? Keep your eye on the ball, right? And so you've got to keep your eye on the ball and figure out where am I going to swing? Where's this ball going? And then from there, it takes another 150 milliseconds for the batter's mind and body to tell it to swing and actually complete the swing. Now, in the first 50 seconds of that swing, the batter can, 50 milliseconds of that swing, he can stop his swing, but after that, the bat is already traveling at 70% of its, of its max speed, and it can't be stopped. You can't check your swing, right? You're going to get called for a strike. And not only that, but there's only about 7 milliseconds in there that uh, if there's a variation of 7 milliseconds, you're either going to hit it, you're going to foul it off, or you're going to miss it completely. And so Robert Adair takes all this information and he concludes that just on the math alone, that it it takes 400 milliseconds for the ball to get from the pitcher's hand across the plate, yet it takes 450 milliseconds to identify the ball, figure out where to swing, and then actually swing. He says it's impossible to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. But do any of us believe that? I mean, do we believe that it's impossible to hit a... Maybe it is for us, but do we believe it's impossible for anyone to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball? No. Why not? Because we've seen it before. We've seen it before. We've seen someone do it. It is undeniable that it is completely possible to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. It's unexplainable as to how someone does it. And, And I watch these guys, man, I love... As bad as they are, I hesitate to call them professional, but I love the Astros. Uh, they're my hometown team. I love watching these guys, and you see them, and they do it all the time. And so it's undeniable that, that they can do it, yet it's unexplainable how the math adds up, and they're actually able to do it. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning is, is the unexplainable versus the undeniable. And we've been talking about when, in, when the light comes on, our, our series that we're going through, is how is it that adults who become believers, how is it that they become believers? And we've said all along that most of the time it's not because there's been some argument or debate that's been won or because, uh, you know, that we gave, gave them a book and they read the book and now they have all the information to answer their questions. But really what happens is something comes along and shrinks their obstacles. Something shrinks their obstacles to where... What really becomes important is that personal relationship with God and those questions about pain and suffering and creation and all these other questions that skeptics or an unbeliever might have, they, they shrink and they pale in comparison to the reality of a relationship with God. Because the undeniable overcomes the unexplainable. 
the undeniable truth that God desires a relationship with them overshadows the unexplainable. I, we see this all the time, not just in baseball. Uh, you know, I was thinking this week about uh, different things, and, and one of the places we see this is in an airplane. I mean, have you ever been with somebody that's afraid to fly? Like, they look at this airplane, and they may know, like, I've been to science class, and I know about lift and drag and all that stuff, and, and, and I know that technically that plane's supposed to get off the ground, but I'm looking at this 747, and it's, you know, 485 tons, and I'm looking at this thing and thinking there's no way this thing's getting off the ground. I'm not getting on that plane. Yet nobody believes that that plane's not going to fly because we've all seen it, right? It may be unexplainable. So maybe some, some of you guys are, are uh, aerospace engineers in here and could explain it in a way that I could understand. But I look at a plane and I just think, man, there's, there's no possible way. That's unexplainable to me. Yet it's undeniable because I've seen planes fly all the time. Even this microphone. I have no idea how it works. But I don't believe that there's like little m- many people in here somehow making my voice appear out of the speakers. Uh, it, it doesn't freak me out if I'm in the back and I hear my voice behind me because I, I, I just, it's undeniable that this thing works. I, I can't explain it, but I know that it works. And we see the same thing in John chapter 9. We're going to be in John chapter 9. And, and what's interesting is that we have um, really a couple main characters in this chapter. And we have a man who's, who's born blind that Jesus is going to heal. And we get to see his response to Jesus versus the Pharisees who witness, they're witness to this same miracle. A man who's been born blind, been blind his whole life, is now able to see, and yet they have a different experience. Because one person allows themselves to latch on to the undeniable while the other focuses on the unexplainable. And so as we look this morning, I want to encourage you to, to ask yourself, am I focusing on what's undeniable or what's unexplainable? Am I going to allow the unexplainable to overshadow the undeniable? Let's look in John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so... Imagine, you come along, this is pretty messed up of the disciples. They're walking along and they see a blind beggar and they, they don't even have any consideration for his feelings. They're just like, Jesus, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? And the guy's over there probably kneeling, begging, and he's, he's singing, uh, I'm blind, but I can still hear you talking about me. Like, that's pretty rude. I mean, that's pretty messed up. And, and really, this is a great opportunity for us to learn because what Jesus does here is that he clarifies some things, right? And that's part of the reason why Jesus came, was so that we could get clarity as to what God is really like and who God really is and what God's heart really is. And so he brings clarity to his disciples, and he's like, he says, verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. All right, so Jesus says, look, it wasn't that his parents sinned. It wasn't that he had some sin uh, in the womb or that God knew he was going to create some massive sin that God punished him and made him blind because that was the belief of many people in Jesus' day that uh, like many people today say that, well, if you do good things and you do the right thing, then God's going to bless you and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You're going to have all the money. You're going to have your best life now. And uh, people sell that stuff all the time. And people in Jesus' day were believing the same thing, that if something bad happened to you, you must have done something really bad. 
Jesus says, let me clear this up for you. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, can you imagine being the disciples? So you mean to tell me that this man has been blind his whole life, sitting here for who knows how long, 20, 30 years, just so God can make a point? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, I don't like that. I don't like that God would allow, well, that's what God's doing. And as we saw last week, you have to remember that, that God comes to us on his terms and not ours. Right? God comes to us on his terms. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing clarity to, to who God really is, to what God is really like. And, and this is what we see throughout the scriptures, is that God gets to set the terms which we approach. And God says, look, I'm not only going to set the terms, I'm going to make the provision. Right? I'm going to provide the way. God says, here are my terms. My terms are this, that, that you are a sinner and I am holy and you cannot approach me without a covering, without an, anoint, uh, uh, an offering, right? You need an atoning sacrifice to cover yourself, but don't worry, I'm going to provide the way. He says, you can't approach me with your religion. You can't approach me with your church attendance. You can't approach me with your money. You have to come to me empty-handed. And trust me, that's what we saw last week. God gets to set the terms, not us. And so this is probably freaking the disciples out. And I'm, I imagine that this man born blind is thinking, so, so my whole life has just been so God can make a point? I don't get that. I don't understand it. Let's see what Jesus does next. He goes into teaching mode. He says, as long as it's day, we, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is making a really big point here. He's telling his disciples, hey, pay attention, wake up. Matthew, go get your, your writing equipment and write this stuff down. John, what are you doing? Grab a quill. This stuff is important. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, but I'm not going to be in the world very long. He says, I, I, while I'm here, we must do the work of him who sent me. Because it's day, right? I'm here to clarify what God is really like, to show all of mankind what God is really like and what his heart is about. You guys need to write this stuff down so that other people will have a chance to read it. You need to pay attention. Something's happening here. There's going to come a time when, when I'm going to leave and there's going to be more confusion. People are going to be confused, but, but you guys are going to be the witnesses to this thing. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. That's a bold claim. I am the light of the world. I am the one who's come to show people who God really is and what he's really like. And then Jesus does this in verse 6. It says, Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told, them, told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So again, imagine you're this blind guy. And these people are just standing there talking about you like you don't even exist. You can hear everything that they're saying. And then the next thing you hear is, this happened so that the work of God may be displayed in this man's life. And then you hear, oh, and you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? I don't like this. I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. I think I, I'd rather uh, just stay blind than have someone spit put on my face. Uh, but he, he makes a clay out of his saliva, and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he says, go and wash. And I guess at this point, the guy doesn't really have a choice because he's got mud made with someone's spit on his face. And so he goes and he washes and he comes home seeing. But look what happens next. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. He's like, guys, this is me. Like, I, it's not some imposter. It's me. And by the way, thanks for asking. My name is Bob. Like, you, I, this, they didn't even know his name. They just said, isn't that the, the beggar guy? And he's like, it's me. I, I can see now. Like, you've seen me for the last 30 years as you pass by, and now you know this is me. I can see. But there's a problem. He replied, the man they called, uh, they said, how, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. They want, they want an explanation. They want an explanation because what, what they see is unexplainable that this man who's been blind for his whole life can now see. Yet it's undeniable that he can see. And so they're asking for an explanation. He says, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. I didn't see where he went. Uh, It doesn't say that last part, but it should, right? Because the last time this man encountered Jesus, he was still blind. And Jesus just puts the mud on his eyes and says, go. Go wash. And the man comes home seeing. Yet the people can't get themselves past this because look at what happens on in verse 13 and 14. It says, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. So this is a big problem for the Pharisees and many of the Jewish people, that Jesus would heal on a Sabbath. This is supposed to be a day of rest. And in fact, he didn't just heal on the Sabbath, but there are a number of uh, things that Jesus does that, that they would look and they would say, you can't do that on the Sabbath, you can't do that on the Sabbath, you can't do that on the Sabbath, right? Spitting on the ground, they would consider that farming, right? You're watering your crops. If you spit on the ground, you might accidentally water a seed, and if you water the seed, it might grow, then you farmed on the Sabbath, you worked on, on the day of rest, you broke the law. That's pretty ridiculous, right? Uh, not only that, but you made mud, you were kneeling clay, Okay, that's work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. And then you healed somebody. They had a a rule that if you were going to heal somebody, if their life was in danger, you could do just enough to save their life to get them over to the next day so that you could then heal them fully on the next day. Like that's how, how much attention these people put on the law and on all this stuff. And Jesus comes and he's like, look, these things, these things aren't important. Like, yes, God rested on the sixth day, but he didn't stop being God. Because if he had stopped being God on, on the seventh day, when he rested, uh, that would be the last day for all of us. Uh, because he's God, and he's the one not only creating, but sustaining. He rested, he stopped his work, uh, but he didn't stop being God. And God doesn't stop working, even on the Sabbath. Like, God is still at work. We're called to rest, and yet they can't get around this. Uh, and what I love about this first section is this, that we see so clearly that Jesus is coming and he's blowing away everyone's expectations of what God should be like and how God should act and what we think God should do. And he's showing them through undeniable means that even the unexplainable things can happen. They're undeniable that God is at work. And, and I love... Uh, It's just such a great reminder to me that we as believers need to be spending time in the Gospels. We need to be spending time in the Gospels because we get to see what God is really like through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us as believers to spend time in the Gospels. And for your friends and family members who aren't believers, 
man, instead of giving them the latest book or sending them to a website or taking them to a debate, challenge them to just open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, just read about the man, Jesus. Just read about Jesus. Because what happens is when skeptics open the scripture is that, that they encounter Jesus in a way that they didn't expect. In fact, Albert Einstein said this. He says that he, he's a Jew. Uh, he was raised in a Jewish home and he says, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. In another place, he talks about the luminous figure of the Nazarene that, that uh, jumps out of the pages of the New Testament. It's undeniable there was something special about Jesus. And when people begin to encounter him, they begin to encounter his word, God begins to move. God begins to act. I, I love this quote by J.I. Packer. I was having lunch with Todd Hollybeck this week, and a uh, quote popped into my head that I've heard before. J.I. Packer is a theologian. Um, he's written a book called Knowing God. You may have read it. Uh, it's a pretty popular book, pretty famous book. But he says this, the purpose of preaching is to mediate encounters with God, to mediate encounters with God. And for me, that is a, that is a huge uh, burden and a blessing that, that I have the opportunity to come and open the Word of God and to read it together and to explain it and to learn it together that in such a way that, that everyone who's here would encounter God. Now, I can't control what happens to you once you have that encounter. You have that encounter with God, and it's up to you to decide, how am I going to respond to this? And as I thought about that this week, it, uh, it really reminded me that as believers, each and every one of us have the duty of arranging encounters with God, mediating encounters with God between God and our lost friends, our friends who don't yet know Christ. And so if we can get them, if we can challenge them, just say, man, let's read through the Gospel of John together. We're just going to read one chapter of John every week. And we're going to get together every week and discuss it. And if we could challenge them and just say, get into God's word, open it, read it, discover who Jesus really is. Let's get together and talk about it. And we could, we could mediate that encounter. Imagine what God would do. Imagine the lives that would be changed. Because we can, we can send people, I mean, I think back to the, the Bill Nye, the science guy, and the Ken Ham debate. That was a great debate. But most likely what happened is people that are already believers walked away more believing, like they had more information that affirmed what they believe, and people that are unbelievers walked away with more disbelief, like they had more reason not to believe. And so nobody's really convinced, but when you have that encounter with God, and that personal relationship with God becomes very, very real, it becomes undeniable, and it overshadows the unexplainable. God shrinks those obstacles, he shrinks those questions, and we can have a true, genuine encounter with God. Now what we see, again, the Pharisees go on in verse 15. Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees therefore also asked how he received his sight. And the man tells him, he says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still, 
still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So this man is here, probably the happiest day of his entire life. He has never seen anything in his life. His eyes are open, and they bring him in, and they're like, we just, this is unexplainable. It does not fit in our mindset of who God is and what God should do. We've, we've got God in a box is where the Pharisees are. Right? They've got God in a box, and they say, God acts this way, God does these things, and he doesn't do these things, and they're not willing to open the scripture and to look and see what God is really like. Because if they had, they could have seen that Jesus really was the Messiah. But they're not willing to do that because it doesn't fit their mindset. They want to believe what they want to believe so they can do what they want to do. Right? They believe what they want to believe so that they can do what they want to do. That's why they have their God box. How many of us have a God box? Like, I'm going to pray this way because then God's going to act this way. Or if I behave this way, then God's going to respond to me this way. Do you have a God box? you find yourself approaching God with limitations of, of how you think and expect he can act that are outside of what Scripture says? Have you got God in a box the same way the Pharisees do? They, they believed what they wanted to believe so that they could do what they wanted to do. How many of us are in the same boat? We may believe that Jesus is our Savior and we've trusted him, but in some area of our life, we believe what we want to believe so we can do what we want to do. We may say, you know what, I do believe that um, God intends sex for, for marriage, but you know what, this is a new day and age. This is a new era, and I'm, I'm 48 years old and I'm still not married. I'm 58 years old, I'm still not married. I'm going to do what I want. God wants me to be happy, right? I'm going to go be happy. Or, you know what, God says for this reason a, a man shall leave his mother and father and be united with his wife and the two shall be one, one flesh. You know, but really, um, my parents uh, are really involved in our lives and, and they're the ones that I go to before I go to my wife. He didn't really mean that because I have a responsibility like I'm supposed to honor my mother and father. So that kind of trumps my relationship with my wife. So I'm going to choose my parents over, over my, my spouse Right? I'm going to believe what I want to believe so I can do what I want to do. Uh, I, I don't really believe God, God wants me to live in a smaller house, so I'm just going to rack up debt on the credit card so I can live in the nice house. Because God wants me to be happy, right? I'm going to believe what I want to believe so I can do what I want to do. I don't believe God's really going to save my neighbor, so I'm not going to go and invest in that relationship. Or I've invested in that relationship, and God is not responding in my time frame. God hasn't saved, I've already talked to this guy about Jesus three times and he hasn't trusted him yet. I'm done. God doesn't fit in my box. We've got to be careful that we don't have a God box like the Pharisees did. Continuing on in verse 20. It says, we know he is our, so they, they don't believe this blind man and they call for his parents. Like this guy has been blind and someone says, look, man, he, he's faking. He's really good at faking because when he was like eight, I threw a rock and hit him in the face. He didn't even try to catch it, but he had to have been faking his whole life. So let's call his parents and make sure this is really real. So they call his parents in and they start to question them. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it then that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Already 
the Jews had decided. They'd already made up their mind. They were approaching God with their own worldview rather than allowing God to determine their worldview. Already they had decided. So the parents say, look, you're going to have to ask him because they're afraid. Now, if you get kicked out of the synagogue, you've got to understand that you are essentially a social outcast. It would be difficult for you to do business. You'd probably just have to move towns, pick up and move, and the parents aren't willing to do that. They say, ask him. Ask the one that was healed. And I love, I love this. I, I love this blind man. Some of you know this. I've got a little bit of a smart aleck in me. Uh, there are times I can be a little bit sarcastic, and I love this encounter that he has with the Pharisees. He's kind of putting them in their proper place because the Pharisees are the ones who were supposed to know the law. They were supposed to know and have seen who the Messiah was. These were the, the cream of the crop when it came to the religious scholars of the day. And I just love this encounter. So it says, um, a second time, they summoned the man who had, who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. Stop saying the name of Jesus is what they're saying. Give glory to God. Stop talking about this Jesus guy because that doesn't fit in our box. That's unexplainable to us. Give glory to God. It says, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, right? Because no one would heal on the Sabbath who is from God. And I love what this guy says. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He's like, come on, guys, focus. Look at me. Look at me in the eyes that are now open. I was blind from birth my whole life. And now I see. And then he goes on. He says, what did he do to you that your eyes were open? It says, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Like, you got to imagine that this guy is just a little bit of, of sarcasm. He's throwing it back in their face. He's like, oh, you guys want to become his disciples too? And this makes him even more mad. And he says, you are this fellow's disciple. They hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. It goes on, the man answered. Now that is remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I just love that whole encounter right there, that this man, and, and what's amazing is that if you go back and you look, at first they ask about Jesus, and he says, the man they called Jesus put mud on my eyes and healed me. And then in this second encounter, they bring him in, and he says, well, what do you say about this man? He says, he's a prophet. And so you're seeing this progression in the blind man's life where he's moving from just this man to now he's a prophet. And later we're going to see that he comes to faith in Jesus. But what's amazing is, who is it that's leading this man to faith? It's the Pharisees through their questioning. Like they don't even know God, yet they're, they're just asking him questions. And as he's reflecting on his story, he's realizing, you know what, I've had this personal encounter. And this could not be possible unless this were the work of God. Unless God had gotten personally involved in my life, this would not be possible. Jesus must be God. He is the prophet. He's the one. And it gets them so mad. And they go back to Moses. And they say, we know that God spoke to Moses. Right? And it's like, really? You know that? 1,500 years ago, you were there in another country on the other side of the desert when God spoke. You know that? You know that. No, the only reason you know that is because 
your great, 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 great grandparents told their kids, who told their kids, who told their kids, told their kids, who told you. You don't know that God spoke to Moses. You weren't there personally, but this is happening right in front of your eyes. We know it's unexplainable, but it's undeniable. Don't let the undeniable, the unexplainable overshadow the undeniable. Yet they do. And they kick the man out of the synagogue because they can't get their mind around the fact that God would heal on the Sabbath, that God would act in a way that's outside of their bounds of how God should work. And so Jesus finds this man, hearing that he's been thrown out, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that phrase, Son of Man, is a phrase from the Old Testament book of Daniel that is used of the Messiah. And I love the man's response. He's ready. He says, who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. The guy is already convinced. He says, I, I know what I've experienced. I just need to know the name of this son of man so that I can, I can be sure that I'm putting my faith in the right person. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And you've got to imagine, your whole life you've been blind. You've had to rely on your other senses. And you hear this voice. The same voice that you heard earlier that day just before your eyes were opened. And you know that he recognizes that voice. He recognizes that voice and he says, I'm ready. I believe. Just tell me. Tell me who to make the object of my belief. And Jesus says, it's me. I'm the man. And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees asked, uh, some of the Pharisees who, who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Two very different responses to the exact same experience. A man who's been born blind, is now able to see. That's unexplainable. Yet now he can see. That is undeniable. And we have two different responses. The man who, who encounters Jesus personally believes, and it says he worshiped him. Yet the Pharisees are filled with wrath and anger because God is not fitting into their box because they're choosing to latch on to the unexplainable. Encounters with God's grace will either lead you to worship or fill you with wrath. Where are you? We've said from the very beginning of this that uh, you don't have to understand everything to believe in something. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. This man probably still had questions. He probably still wanted to know, God, why did you wait so long for me to be healed? He probably still had questions, why from birth? Like, even as a kid, like, how much did I miss out on as a kid because I was blind all those years? He had questions, but he came through the relationship. You don't have to understand everything to believe in something. He began to believe because of that personal encounter with God. Um, Tim Keller is a, a pastor of, of Redeemer Presbyterian up in Manhattan, and the uh, church was planted about uh, 1989, I believe. And uh, Tim Keller writes about 
his experience in planting this church and getting it started and just seeing what God had done. And, and really, this church is a really large church at this point, and it's mainly made up of single 20-year-olds, which is very uncommon for, for church in general. A church in the middle of Manhattan, New York, is extremely, it's just odd. And so he's writing about this, and he says, when, when we started this church, it took a couple years, but something happened. Something that I'd only experienced once in my life, it was a revival. Now when we talk about revival, we're not talking about a set of meetings that we go to every night for a week in June. Like that's revival meetings, but he's talking about revival, like real revival. And what he says about revival is this, that when revival happens, sleeping Christians wake up. Nominal Christians, like people who come to church and they fill the seats and they say, you know, yes, I'm a Christian, but they don't truly believe. Nominal Christians get saved, and people far, far from God get saved spectacularly. That, to me, there's nothing more that I want to see in my lifetime than to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Like, what better thing could there be for us than that? that sleeping Christians would wake up, nominal Christians would get saved, and those far from God would get saved spectacularly. So that neighbor that, that, man, you just think there is no hope for this guy, like if he were to come to church, the building would burn down. Imagine if that person got saved spectacularly. And that happens when we begin to open the word of God, when we encourage others to open the word of God and they see it and they experience God in a way that they never have before in an unexpected way, when they look at the undeniable and they cling to the undeniable rather than the unexplainable. I'm going to ask you, uh, bow your heads at this time, and I just want us to spend a little bit of time in prayer before we, uh, before we close. And I just want to ask you this, are, are you one of those sleeping Christians? Have your eyes been opened yet you've fallen asleep? Maybe, maybe you're realizing this morning you have a God box that needs to be destroyed. You need to spend some more time in the scripture seeing what God is really like and how God really works and allow him to tear down those barriers. Maybe you're here and uh, your eyes haven't been opened yet you come week after week and you're searching. Maybe it's time that you allow that personal encounter with Jesus Christ to be the things that opens your eyes. Maybe you're here and, and you just say, man, this is not for me at all. I, I don't know how I'd ever get there. And if that's you, I, I just want to encourage you to pray as we've, as we've prayed throughout this series that God, I want to know you more than I want to know the answers to my questions. Where are you this week? What would it take for us to see a revival in Georgetown, Texas, where sleeping Christians wake up, where nominal Christians get saved, and those far from God get saved spectacularly. I believe it begins with the opening of the word of God, together as believers and with those who have yet to place their faith in Christ, that they could experience something that is undeniable. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would break down all of our barriers, that you would destroy any type of God box that we have. Lord, that, that we would see your undeniable work in our lives and that you would allow us to see a revival in Georgetown. 
that people, men and women and children, would come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ, because the word of God is being taught, not just at River Rock Bible Church, but at, at Georgetown Church of Christ, at First Baptist Georgetown, at Grace Bible, at, at Hill Country Georgetown, at New Church Georgetown, at Main Street Baptist Church, that the word of God would be taught, that people would open the word of God, and they would encounter Jesus Christ in a way that they never have before, and they would open the word of God with their friends and family who don't know Jesus, and they would encounter the luminous figure that would light up their life, that Jesus would be the light of the world, and men and women and children would get saved. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.